It's not meat that made us human. It's not plants that made us human. It's not fire that made us human. The role that food processing or our ability to take a broad spectrum of foods played in human evolution is it allowed it, it allowed us to expand, right? So I think that sort of what makes us human in terms of diet is our ability to take a very, very, and you mentioned a narrow spectrum of foods. I would disagree. I would say that we've got an incredibly broad potential diet compared to any other primate species in the world, compared to almost any species as it is. Our ability to take a very broad spectrum of foods is what allowed us to take over the world. How could we leave Africa? How could we go to the Arctic? How could we go to the Antarctic? How could we go to the equator if we didn't have the ability to find something to eat there? Different foods are available in different places. And our incredible ability to take a broad spectrum of food items, I believe, is one of the keys to our success. It's what makes us human. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Hello, everyone. Before I get into the podcast with Dr. Peter Ungar, I wanted to talk about my book, Return to Human, a little bit. So a lot of people have been asking, what is it about? Why did I write it? You know, what is this thing? Well, I noticed something pretty disturbing when the pandemic first began. It was a one-sided, dogmatic approach to pretty much everything. And depending on the news source that you picked, whether it was CNN or Fox News or some other intermediate there, you saw a different, distorted version of the truth right? Everyone was so biased, but not me, of course, right? I was the ultimate beacon of truth. No, I'm just kidding. But it wasn't until I got halfway through writing the book that I could see just how much bias I held myself. And so this realization sparked a fire in me to truly be as objective as I could and understanding what the hell was going on around me and within me. And so I kind of divide the book into two parts. The first part is what has happened to science, but not just the science in quotation marks, which you hear on the news to support whatever stance you've taken on the pandemic. I'm talking about real science, the force of investigation, which is rarely black or white. It doesn't shame. It doesn't divide people, but rather brings them together. And so I discuss the limitations of scientific research and also the benefits that we've derived from it, because it seems like during this pandemic, we've, we've had two very, very, uh, polarized extremes, right? We've had one side, which is, you know, more the back to nature movement, which is kind of denounces all of modern medicine. And to be fair, I was on that side for a while. Uh, And it wasn't until I got halfway through writing this book that I thought to myself, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm not really truly being as objective as I think I am. But you also have the other side, which thinks, you know, the lives our ancestors led were horrible and Modern medicine is the saving grace of humanity. We should never go back there. 
and they're totally ignoring our evolutionary history and ignoring the fact that we have people like the Hadza and, and other hunter-gatherer populations that have virtually zero chronic disease risk, right? And so there's a balance to these perspectives. That's what I hope to show in the first part. The second part is how the discovery of what science truly is empowered me to take action and grab the reins on my own health. And in a sense, it saved me. And I hope to share some science-backed tools I've discovered to decrease the risk of virtually all chronic diseases. But that's not everything. Maybe most importantly, I also discuss all of the lifestyle factors which have contributed to severe COVID-19. And unfortunately, they've been mostly ignored in the fight against COVID-19 with statements that we always hear like, there's nothing you can do to prevent a severe case of COVID-19. You've probably heard scientists saying that, but it doesn't change the fact that it's not scientific whatsoever. Of course, I'm not saying that I know it all or that there aren't genetic factors that come into play which you can't control. But what I can say is that there is another side to the story and that there are many, many lifestyle factors that are largely within our control that have been pretty much thrown to the side, right? And it's been mostly a pandemic of fear rather than a pandemic of taking responsibility and taking action for your own health, transforming your own health so that you can be as resilient as possible to virtually any disease that you come across. So I hope you give it a read. The link is in the description for you to find. Thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, Hugh Kitchen Foods. Disappointed by some of the styrofoam tasting health foods on the market, co-founders Jordan Brown, Jason Karp, and Jessica Karp founded Hugh Kitchen with a focus on getting back to human. They offer fully organic, grain-free paleo foods such as delicious crackers with a hint of rosemary, dark chocolate lightly sweetened with organic coconut sugar, and dark chocolate filled with almond butter, raspberries, hazelnut butter, or cashew butter. They're great to give us health-conscious gifts for friends or family, or just for yourself. So, since you're a listener of the podcast, you'll get 10% off site-wide using code J-O-R-G-E in the link in the description. Now, on with the show. Today I have with me Dr. Peter Ungar, a PhD in anthropology from Stony Brook University. Dr. Ungar has taught at Johns Hopkins University and Duke and is now a director of environmental dynamics at the University of Arkansas. He's written or co-authored over 200 scientific studies focusing on diet in primates as well as reconstructing the diet of our human ancestors. Dr. Ungar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So to start off with the main overarching question of this whole series is what foods did humans evolve to eat? How can we begin answering that question? Well, it's a tough question to answer. Um, for me, the best way to address it is to look at the fossil record for human evolution and try and reconstruct the diets of our ancestors using uh, their teeth, mostly, but also uh, analogy with, with living primates and living traditional peoples. And you focus mainly on the dental wear, the dental microwear. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, dental microwear is, and it's called dental microwear. These are the microscopic scratches and pits that form on the tooth surface. 
as a result of its use. But dental microware is just one of a, uh, of a new category of what we call proxies or uh, bits of evidence for diet in, in, in fossil species. These lines of evidence actually are like footprints in the sand. I call them food prints, uh, traces of actual activities of once living organisms. They include things like the scratches that form on the teeth as a result of chewing, the chemistry in the teeth and bones that results from the foods that are used to build those teeth and bones, and little bits of food that are occasionally trapped in the tartar on teeth that we find in the fossil record. Uh, so this, this sort of contrasts with the more traditional method of reconstructing diet, which is looking at the sizes and the shapes of the teeth, which tell you something about what animals in the past were capable of eating, but not what they actually ate on a daily basis. These traces of past behavior, I think, are what gonna give us, uh, what's gonna give us the, uh, the lines of evidence for what, uh, what was actually eaten by individuals in the past. And dental microware, as, as you alluded to already, is the pattern of scratches and pits on teeth or in teeth that result from what foods are being eaten and different foods leave different patterns. If we can figure out how to read those patterns, then we can say something about the diets of the individuals whose fossil teeth we hold in our hands. And if we can look through the human fossil record over time, we can look and talk about how diet has changed uh, over time. And from this dental microware, can we predict how much of each type of foods humans ate? I know in some previous uh, interviews that I've had uh, with other experts, they've told me that it's really difficult to figure out quantity. It's more, it's easier to find out what they ate rather than the quantity. Is that true? Yes, um, the kinds of information that each of these proxies can give us uh, differs. And they, I mean, dental microware can tell you if an animal eats soft foods, if an animal ate tough foods like uh, grasses or leaves or meat, if an animal ate really hard foods like nuts or crunched bone or something like that. Uh, and you, you can't figure out exactly how much was eaten. But if, say, you've got 20 individuals and 15 of them or 18 of them look like they had a tough diet, and you combine that with other lines of evidence, um, that can tell you that, for example, most of the individuals in the species eat grass most of the time. And basically, the way that this works is if you crush hard foods, uh, envision or imagine a hammer hitting an anvil. Uh, when that happens, you create pitting in the anvil from the hammer. So if you crush hard foods, if you, if you force your teeth together, that's going to create pits. Whereas if you slice tough foods, let's say you have a pair of scissors and you're trying to slice a tough leaf or a sheet of paper that's tough, what happens is the blades from the scissors scrape past one another and they go in sort of the same direction. And the abrasives on the paper, or if it's a food on the, the food in the inner on the leaves, get dragged along that surface as the blades slide past one another. And that causes long linear scratches. So crushing hard foods, pits. Um, shearing or slicing through tough foods, scratches. You can actually look at the percentage of pits to scratches to say something about diet. And if you've got 20 individuals, all 20 of them look pitted up, you can be pretty convinced that 
that fossil species was a hard object feeder, a nuts or bone. Whereas if it's 50-50, probably had a pretty broad diet that included both tough and uh, brittle foods, hard foods. If they're all filled with scratches, probably no hard foods in the diet. So this is a way of getting at things like how broad the diet was in the past. Got it. Um, are there any other proxies that you specifically study? Well, um, my colleagues and I, I mean, one of the other proxies that I'm sort of known for is looking at um, the sizes and the shapes of the teeth to tell us something about what the species evolved to consume. So for example, if the teeth are large and they're filled with, uh, with, with lots of high crests, they were probably used for shearing and slicing through a lot of tough vegetation because you have to eat a lot in order to, to satisfy your, your nutritional needs because tough vegetation tends to be low quality, um, not a lot of calories. If on the other hand, your teeth are small and blunt, um, nuts were more likely your diet. So when we combine the microware with the morphology, that can tell us both what an animal evolved to eat and what it ate on a daily basis. And the fun part comes when the two are not in sync, when, when you get different results from the different proxies, as it were. Now, I also study along with colleagues some of these other proxies like isotopes. Isotopes are really very valuable, especially carbon in the fossil record, because they can tell us, for example, uh, if an animal is eating tropical grasses and sedges, or animals that eat tropical grasses and sedges, or if an animal is eating bush and tree products. That's especially important for human evolution, because it tells us whether that animal was out on the open savanna or still living in the forest depending upon whether it was eating grass products or tree products. Now, like you said, um, are there times where you have, for example, the dental microware and the teeth size and shape um, that differs from gut morphology or acidity? Whereas you, for example, um, the high acidity of someone that would be an individual or species that would be more carnivorous kind of has like different types of teeth that don't really correlate with that. Mm. Does that happen? Well, the $64,000, I guess now it's the million dollar question um, that I'm always asked is, can you use microware to tell whether an animal was ate meat, right? And the irony about it is that meat tends not to scratch teeth because it's soft and it doesn't contain a lot of abrasives. So uh, we need to look for other kinds of proxies to see whether meat was consumed. Things like whether the teeth are sharp, uh, we may be able to say something about meat consumption by looking at some of the other kinds of isotopes like nitrogen. Um, but when we put, you know, it's so, so no one proxy is going to be a, uh, you know, a, a smoking gun. You need to have a whole bunch of different kinds of proxies, put them together and start to say something about diet. Right. Yeah. That's something that I talked about in my interview with uh, Dr. Bill Schindler. His theory is, um, in the book he wrote is called uh, Eat Like a Human. And his main, the main takeaway that I got from his book is that it's not so much the what, but it's the how. So it's not so much what foods were humans designed to eat with our limited physiology, but it's more how 
have ancient populations transformed a certain food to make it as bioavailable, as digestible, and as nutritious as possible. So it may be that, uh, you know, we were limited in terms of our teeth and maybe our guts, but by fermenting something, by soaking, by sprouting something, we kind of obtain more nutrition from it. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the meat uh, affecting dentition, um, based on other proxies that you and your colleagues have looked into, um, do you think that maybe some parts of the fossil record um, or other pieces of evidence kind of underestimate how much meat we ate? I think that the archaeological record overestimates how much meat we ate. And the main reason for that is that meat leaves an archaeological record. We've got uh, bones, bones at archaeological sites with cut marks all over them. Our stone tools we know are used for slicing meat. And so this puts together uh, the sort of conventional standard long time scenario that we call man the hunter, right? Um, and you know, today, of course, we wouldn't use man the hunter, we use humans the hunters. Uh, but I think that underplays the role of plants in uh, diet and human evolution because the archaeological record is pretty silent to plants. We don't typically find plants in the archaeological record because they disintegrate over time, whereas bones do not. So in fact, I would say that if anything, our estimates of plants, is at least for those species that have an archeological record that includes the bony remains of our prey, uh, plants are underestimated. And what are your thoughts on how much, I guess it's a really difficult question probably to answer, but how much plants or how much meat because like you said, it's always seen as like meat is what's made us human, like cooking meat is what's made us human and it's expanded our brains. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a different take <laughs> on this entirely. And I would argue more closely to what your previous guest would argue, which is it's not meat that made us human. It's not plants that made us human. It's not fire that made us human the role that food processing or our ability to take a broad spectrum of foods played in human evolution is it allowed, it allowed us to expand, right? So I think that sort of what makes us human in terms of diet is our ability to take a very, very, and you mentioned a narrow spectrum of foods. I would disagree. I would say that we've got an incredibly broad potential diet compared to any other primate species in the world, compared to almost any species as it is, our ability to take a very broad spectrum of foods is what allowed us to take over the world. How could we leave Africa? How could we go to the Arctic? How could we go to the Antarctic? How could we go to the equator if we didn't have the ability to find something to eat there? Different foods are available in different places. And our incredible ability to take a broad spectrum of food items, I believe is one of the keys to our success. It's what makes us human, really. I think that stone tools, I think that cooking with fire, I think that these other softening approaches that you mentioned, I think other methods of detoxifying items, our ability to find something to eat, some way to fuel our bodies, 
just about anywhere we find ourselves is sort of the role that food plays in human evolution. And that plays into the question, again, another question I'm asked, which is sort of what was the, the ancestral human diet? Uh, and I would have to argue there is no single ancestral human diet and that any diet that limits what we eat is not gonna be what we evolved for. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, especially nowadays when everyone in the ancestral health space is trying to you know, either say keto was the ancestral diet or paleo was the ancestral diet. The carnivore diet's now a thing, right? Um, and the vegan diet's kind of also huge um, the past few years. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense that the truth as, as with many things often falls somewhere in the middle. And in this case, it's more so the fact that we evolved to be very flexible in terms of our diet, which is what I'm hearing you say is like a huge part of it, right? We were able to survive in really cold climates and hunt megafauna when they were available. We were able to also, you know, forage for plants and their populations. Like I've, I've seen some of your research and other videos and interviews you've had, and there are populations that do the exact opposite, right? They just eat like a lot of plant foods um, and a lot of carbohydrates. So that's the hallmark of being human, I think. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, when you start to think about it, everybody has their sort of go-to traditional and uh, a traditional group to, to, to view as the ancestral human diet type. For some people, it's the Eskimos or what we, the Inuit, now we would call them, um, who get their entire diet from meat, basically, marine mammals and fish. Uh, whereas for others, it's the, it's the son of the Kalahari, the traditional group that gets 70% of their calories from sugary melons and starchy, starchy roots. So again, I think that the fact that all of these diets work and we can function on them is really extremely telling, really extremely telling. Right. A, a question that just came up as you were saying that, um, so the flexibility of us kind of as a as a species um i've had some people on uh, to talk about nutrigenomics so how are like single nucleotide polymorphisms uh in different like populations of people kind of allow us to fare better on certain diets potentially the the field of nutrigenomics is still like really really young but that's the theory um and so it's i mean i'm, I'm having my dna sequenced soon so i'm kind of excited to see if there are any, in your opinion, uh, kind of value to seeing what your ancestors, your more immediate ancestors ate and how that affects you? Sure. Um, and in fact, there's very little doubt that your ancestry does impact your ability to digest, to digest different kinds of foods. Um, some groups, some people uh, are perfectly, people of Middle Eastern descent, whose ancestors were pastoralists. Uh, and, and these are people who consumed a lot of milk products. They're not gonna tend to be lactose intolerant. Whereas people whose ancestry does not include pastoralism, say that we talked about the San and the Kalahari, they will more likely be lactose intolerant, right? Because their ancestors never had to drink the lactal secretions of other mammals as adults. It doesn't make much sense from an evolutionary perspective to be able to, you know, I mean, it takes energy to, to, to continue to produce the, the enzyme um, 
the, the lactase that's used to break down milk sugar into adulthood, right? So, so if you're going to continue to do that into adulthood, it's from an evolutionary perspective, it's kind of weird, right? Why would you want to drink the milk of another mammal, especially as an adult? You're not designed to drink milk as an adult. But some people have evolved that ability. They've got, they, they don't shut down the ability to digest milk sugar. The amylase gene is another classic example. People with a um, with an agricultural ancestry, uh, particularly those that that have traditionally uh, farmed for for wheat products, they have more copies of the amylase gene, which which breaks this stuff down, than do those that don't have uh, an agricultural ancestry. So there's very little doubt that that um, ancestry can play into how well we digest different kinds of foods. People have different genetic profiles. Right, right, right. And, and I'm thinking also, you know, as we become more and more interconnected, I mean, we can basically travel anywhere in the world now in, in less than a day. If this sort of, um, you know, immediate ancestry that we had our grandparents or great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, how much will that actually matter if, you know, we're, you know, we're, you know, marrying someone that's on the other side of the globe, and then their genes are mixing together. What kind of an effect might that have? I think it's awesome. I mean, there's no way to predict because there's conservation of, of genetics. Um, every two children you have is going to have, on average, your, your entire genome. So, so if you, if you were to uh, have two children with someone else, your genes are going to be preserved, both you and this other individual's genes. But um, I mean, recombination is what is what um, what life is all about, right? The 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 whole idea of um, mixing <laughs> that adds just different combinations of genet of of genotypes of of genetic profiles. Um, it really, I think, enriches populations, right? If if, for example, you're insular and you always sort of choose to mate within your group, that's going to be really limiting. And, you know, I mean, if you want to avoid um, homozygous recessive diseases, diseases that, that you get because both of your parents have the gene for it, the best way to do that is to marry someone from the other side of the world that doesn't have that gene. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting when we start to get more widely available testing for, for DNA and just seeing all the uh, different unique mixes of, of these uh, SNPs. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, I mean, I've done Ancestry.com um, and that stuff's really cool. Uh, I, I'm not sure that we are yet at the point where we've got all the genes related to diet sequence that are relevant. Um, and my guess is that they're not doing enough of the of the DNA sequence to pull that stuff out anyway. But yeah, it would be pretty cool. And and there is a big future in in, in genomics. There's also a big future in gut microbiome microbiome research, uh, looking at sort of the profile of the um, bacteria that are inside your gut and what those are sort of designed, if you want to use the term, or have evolved to to breakdown. Right. Yeah. And there's also some evidence uh, that I saw. I'm actually having Dr. Laura Weyrich. I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name, but 
she found that there's through the dental biofilm, she kind mm -hmm. of found like bacteria that could tell you some things about the diet. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm real familiar with her research. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Um, one other question, what kind of controversy I wanted to ask you. So again, going back to uh, what we hear all over social media and the ancestral health space, um, a lot of people are saying that the transition towards agriculture meant that we had, you know, more of a reliance on plant foods, um, and which are sometimes referred to as fallback foods. And they argue that this led to a decrease of our size of our jaws, the density of our skulls, and even the size of our brains. So is there some truth to that? And uh, are all those things necessarily a bad thing? Hmm. Good question. One area of very active research, particularly in dentistry, is what they're calling, what they call now sleep dentistry. Right, and that uh, the people who work in that area are very active in, in airway studies and how changes in ancestral diets have impacted our airways. So um, by your smile, I can see that you're familiar with this. Um, and you know, I, get, I get interviewed by folks about this kind of stuff all the time. I've spoken to lots of uh, study groups of dentists uh, who are interested in sleep dentistry uh, and airway studies. And it's absolutely true that generations ago, our jaws were longer. We tended not to have crooked and crowded teeth um, because our jaws were longer, our teeth fit them properly. And that stressing those jaws is what stimulates them to grow to their potential length, right? When you were a baby, when most of your listeners were babies, they probably were fed baby food, right? Sort of mashed yams and those, awful little glass jars of things. Um, and in fact, my kids were too. And I kept yelling at my, well, not yelling, but I kept telling my wife, you know, stop feeding them this. Give them some beef jerky. Give them something to chew on. I, of course, lost that argument because she said she'd rather them have crooked teeth than choke to death. Um, but nevertheless, there's no question that uh, early people put a lot more force on their jaws when they were chewing because they had to chew tough, tougher and harder foods than the highly refined and processed foods we eat today while those jaws were developing. And as any sort of bone scientist can tell you, when you repeatedly load bone, it stimulates the cells, the osteoblasts that secrete bone to do that. Right, And when those cells secrete bone, the length of the jaw, the whole size of the jaw grows to match the size of the teeth. That's important for sleep dentistry. The problem because of your airway. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult. I mean, having crooked and crowded teeth can be bad. It can lead to cavities. It can lead to impacted molars. It can lead to, well, you know, uh, a, a lot of people don't think sort of crooked and crowded teeth is attractive, and it can lead to problems with chewing. And those are problems in and of themselves, but perhaps an even larger problem is the fact that a smaller jaw means a smaller oral cavity, less room in the mouth for your tongue. And your tongue size is, is pretty constant. That's not going to change. 
So if there's not enough room in your mouth or your tongue, you're not going to be able to breathe quite as well. Especially at night, your tongue's going to slip to the back of your throat because your jaw is not long enough to contain it, and you're going to have sleep apnea. And that and and this is a huge avenue for research. It's not necessarily related to our ancestral diets, but it's certainly probably related to changes that occurred with the refinement and softening of foods during, say, the Industrial Revolution, when we started eating like peanut butter sandwiches, right? And, and in right. fact, if you look, there, there have been studies that have been done in India, rural versus urban. People of India that eat softened urban foods, you know, chapate and, and, and lentils and things like that that, that, that are cooked, their teeth, their jaws are shorter their teeth are more crowded and they don't have the airway space than their cousins who are living out in more rural parts of India that have access, that, 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 that have tougher foods, less refined and processed foods. And the story goes on over and over again. We saw it, we see it um, from one generation to the next of the Pima peoples um, out of the American Southwest. One generation, jaws were great, next generation, Canneries came in, processed foods, jaw shrank. We see it in the rural peoples of Kentucky, right? The traditional peoples in the backwoods of Kentucky, their teeth were great, the jaws were perfect length, but their kids who started to rely on processed and refined foods, they didn't hunt and gather themselves and didn't, didn't uh, grow themselves. Again, you start to see this change. It occurs over and over again in all kinds of populations. So in that sense, yeah, there's very little question that changes to our diets in the recent past have had an impact on our biology that have affected both our oral health, incidence of cavities, shortened jaw, and even our breathing. So part of the story is with the lack of like the mechanical stimulation of kind of developing the jaw muscles during, during development. It's not the jaw muscles, it's the or jaw bones. The jaw bones, right. It's the jaw bone itself. If you look, you know, I mean, there's a reason that they tell older women who are prone to, uh, to, to bone loss mm -hmm. that they should go out and exercise and jar their bones because that's going to stimulate the cells that produce more bone to produce more bone. When you jar something, when you smack your bone, when you put stress on a bone, that bone responds by making more bone to strengthen itself, right? And right. if that occurs during development, the ultimate length of your bone depends upon how much stress you put on it while you're growing. Okay, so part of that is, is just kind of stimulating the 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 bone, not so much the muscle to develop and, and grow more, to allow more room for the tongue, to allow more room for the teeth. Um, yeah, I bet you that 90% of your listeners have had either impacted or non-forming wisdom teeth, have had lower front teeth that are sort of pushed together, and have had upper front teeth that jut out in front of the lowers rather than edge to edge. I bet you do. Um, I know I do. And that's in, in, that would not have been the case in our ancestors, people with the same genetics that didn't have such highly refined and processed foods in our diets. 
yeah, I definitely had to take my wisdom teeth out because I didn't have room. Um, but luckily it was, it actually went well, but, uh, can't speak for most of my friends who did have them, uh, impacted. Um, and in fact, I talk about that with my own daughter, uh, in an, in a, in a, uh, uh, a recent Scientific American paper that I wrote, and and there's a here's a little secret for your for your listeners. The uh, the the image in there of the jaw with the impacted wisdom teeth that's my daughter's jaw. <laughs> <laughs> we we were able to get permission to to reprint it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um it's a fascinating field of study, um, and I think there is also another argument that I've heard. I had a uh, Dr. Joel Gould on the podcast as well. And he talks about like Weston A. Price's work. And mm. uh, they kind of argue more towards, you know, like the importance of nutrients, like, for example, like vitamin K2 uh, and D3 that, um, you know, K2 is mostly found in like organ meats, for example. Um, and it's kind of been missing from the diet uh, in a lot of ways because most people kind of think it's gross or they're not sure how to cook it. Um, and in addition to what you said about uh, harder foods, they think that there's a nutrient aspect to this. What, what are your thoughts on that? Could be. Uh, that's sort of outside my wheelhouse. Um, I'm not an expert in that area. I would say that from an evolutionary perspective, all that our ancestors cared about was getting enough calories to get through the next day. Right? That, that was right. what it was about. It was not about well, how am I going to survive in my old age? You know, right. I have bone loss in my old age. Nobody cared about that. It was, let me get another day. Uh, and when you have to forage for your own food, you're not saying, all right, well, do I need to go for the inland with the big old liver or do I need to go for the um, baobab fruits with the whatever nutrient, you know, name your nutrient? That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking, how can I fill my belly so that I can survive for the next day? Right. And, you know, and, and in fact, if you look at the age profiles of our fossils, and these are the animals at the age that they die, they died fairly young. So um, if your goal is to survive, say, into uh, sort of a post reproductive age, there's not really an evolutionary. Um, way of getting there because we're not designed for that right right yeah and I, I think the question that comes up for a lot of people at this point is like of course we had to just look for calories first that was like the most important thing but then people kind of are now asking the question what was optimal and what is optimal and from some previous interviews that I've had they, they seem to think that because for example meat is something that's you know hundreds or even, uh, I think it's hundreds of times more calorically dense per, you know, time that you spend foraging than plants, that that's something that was favored. Well, it's not hundreds of times more calorically dense than plants, um, given time spent foraging. I can tell you from my own experience with the hides of hunter-gatherers of, of Tanzania, and from reports from other hunter-gatherers, the San of the Kalahari, um, hunter-gatherers in the New World and the Amazon, as often as not, or even more often than not, they come home with nothing, right? I mean, 
these men will go out and they will spend hour after hour after hour and they often fail to bring back food. The women who sit around the camp digging up tubers, they're the ones that feed the family most of the time. And while calorically, per unit volume, meat may be denser. The amount of energy expended to get the meat generally doesn't justify the amount of time spent searching for it. So yes, if somebody hands you an antelope, you can get more out of it than if somebody hand, hands you a, a whole bunch of roots, <laughs> but it's an awful lot easier. Roots don't run away <laughs> to get the roots. And more often than not, that's what's gonna feed the family. Because I've heard from several people that have visited the Hadza as well that their reservations are kind of slowly getting smaller and smaller and they're not having access to hunting larger animals as they used to before. Well, this is a good point and it's a valid point. The surviving foragers of the world, there, there are fewer and fewer. And to be honest with you, the Hadza are just about gone now. The Tanzanian government has been working hard to sedentize them. Uh, there, there are probably more researchers out studying Hadza than there are Hadza in the bush today. Um, well, it's probably an exaggeration, but not a great exaggeration. Most of the traditional foragers that we study are those that live in marginal environments because those that lived in lusher environments have moved on to raising animals and planting foods. And those people who, who are currently still foraging have been moved into more sort of um, marginal environments, whether it's the whether it's the desert or the open savanna or the high Arctic. Yeah, there are some that are still in rainforest settings, like um, like in the Amazon. But even there, it's 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 it can be challenging without technology to to, to farm and raise animals. Um, so that is a point. I mean, you, you do have a point. Um, but I think under all circumstances, hunting is hard. And all you need to do is look at the success rates of carnivores that live in places where there's plentiful meat to, to understand that um, a deer is going to have a much more reliable source of food than a lion is. If you're a deer or, or if you're a cow, all you have to do is lower your head, open your mouth and start chewing and there's food right in front of you, mm -hmm. right? That lion is going to more often than, 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 than not fail to secure an animal who's running away from it. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's something that, uh, that I had Dr. Bender on the podcast. That's something that didn't really come up as much. So it came up that it could be, you know, per volume, like you said, more calorically dense because of the fat. Um, but the point about how much energy it takes to bring the animal down, to butcher it, um, you know, to start a fire, to gather the wood for that. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. You know, Her Herman Panzer has taught us that it's not simply a matter of calories in, calories out, uh, because exercise is a terrible way to lose weight. Because, right. Because, you know, in fact, I mean, I use, uh, just before this interview, I was on my stationary bike on Zwift, and over the course of about an hour, 45 minutes, I, I was able to burn the equivalent number of calories as one slice of pizza, which is very disheartening for all that effort. 
But right. nevertheless, it if your success rate in hunting is really low, you're not getting a lot of calories out of it for the effort you're putting in. Right. It's right. not what we call optimal foraging. Right. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So the final question that I wanted to ask you is what needs to be further investigated in your opinion? And what would you and your colleagues like to uh, further investigate to, to keep answering the question of what humans evolved to eat? Well, I think what we need to do is we need to continue along the line of looking for new food prints to understand more about what animals really in the past ate on a daily basis as our fossil record improves. And it is improving because there's lots of people, COVID aside, going out and finding new fossils all the time. We need to continue to find new tools to study them. We need to continue to uh, come up with new ways of getting at more details. So for example, we look at different kinds of isotopes. We come up with more innovative ways of extracting proteins and DNA from the tartar that we find inside the teeth. Um, we, we come up with better ways of looking at the oral microbiome by looking at, at, at the teeth. All, I mean, when I got into this field like 30 years ago, there was nothing. None of this stuff that I've talked to you about today even existed. There were, there, the microware was extremely limited. The isotopes had not really been done on the hominins. And we, we knew nothing, but you know, the amount of information, the detail has been growing in leaps and bounds. And there are more and more people working on newer and more innovative ways of getting at more detail. And I think that's, that's probably our most fruitful direction, at least at the moment. And where can people find out more about you and your work? Any, um, I'll link to your books, of course, in the show notes, but any other links you'd like to share? Well, I mean, there's Evolution's Bite is sort of probably sort of describes my research and how I how how that evolved, how I came to 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 do what I do. Um, I've got a couple of articles in Scientific American that are are kind of fun and useful. And you can feel free to visit uh, my website, ungerlab.uark.edu, to find out a little bit more about what I'm doing today and the folks in my lab. Amazing. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.